The Rural Health Voice, Episode 52, Telehealth. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. How can technology improve healthcare access? Donna Dittman-Hale, Executive Director of the Bay Rivers Telehealth Alliance, joined me to discuss plugging into telehealth. So welcome, Donna. Well, thank you, Beth, and congratulations on being nominated the president-elect of the National Rural Health Association. We're excited about that. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome, and good luck. (laughs) Thank you. We're going to need it. Absolutely. Uh, and of course, we appreciate you being one of our speakers for our uh, conference last fall and you talking about telehealth. You know, going back, how did you first become interested in telehealth? Well, I came into the Bay Rivers Telehealth Alliance as a consultant, helping out with uh, grant resource development and evaluation. And so I was brand new to telehealth about eight years ago. And uh Really, uh, the Bay Rivers Telehealth Alliance was formed as a consortium to be able to respond quickly and nimbly to requests for funding opportunities from the federal government, which were primarily um, calling out to rural areas to form consortiums. So I had uh, quite a bit of experience um, with grant resource development, working with consortiums and assisted with uh, the development of a, an application on behalf of Bay Rivers Telehealth Alliance and um, and then became their evaluation coordinator of a grant with the Telehealth Network Grant Program to develop uh, behavioral health services in rural nursing homes in partnership with uh, Riverside Health Systems, the Community Services Board in the Middle Peninsula Northern Neck, and Bay Aging, other partners in Eastern Virginia. And I see that you are a certified telehealth coordinator. What does that mean? Well, I went through training offered by the STAR Telehealth Uh, Center, which is a joint venture between UVA and New College Institute in Virginia. They offer telehealth certification classes, including um, for telehealth presenters. They actually have a whole range of classes now. Um, But that was a certification class that I did early on because I needed to know the language of telehealth and um, everything from soup to nuts. So that really helped me a lot to have that initial training. It was offered uh, through the Mid-Atlantic Telehealth Resource Center through their annual summit. And um, our consortium ended up working closely with the STAR Telehealth Institute to offer that training um, in our region through our partners as well. So um, there are a number of ways you can get that kind of different certifications for telehealth, but it really helps to know the language and understand the business of telehealth. And um, and it takes quite a bit of work to keep up with it because it's constantly changing. Well, and I tend to throw the words telehealth and telemedicine around interchangeably, but they're not necessarily exactly the same, are they? 
Well, telemedicine is the more clinical application and really refers to that exchange of uh, protected health information between a health professional and a patient. Um, it's that the clinical service that's happening. Telehealth is the broader umbrella. And these days you can even get even broader than that. In fact, our, uh, our mission statement recently changed to embrace even more than just telehealth and uh, move to virtual health, which includes things like remote patient monitoring, artificial intelligence, and other kinds of digital health applications beyond just um, telehealth. But we've seen in the last, especially since COVID started, telehealth is becoming a word that most people are starting to recognize. I've noticed um, it showing up on commercials for health insurance and healthcare systems and um, all different products. So it's becoming a part of our language that is uh, recognizable by most people. A year ago, I would say I'm with the um, Bay Rivers Telehealth Alliance to somebody who wasn't familiar with healthcare. And even some people who are in healthcare would say, huh? So it's good to see um, that most people are now familiar with the word telehealth and what that means. Yeah, COVID has brought on a lot of very interesting changes, and one of those has been very rapid expansion of, of telehealth. Yeah, in your presentation, you mentioned that there were several regulations put in place due to COVID. Are you hoping that some of those will stay in place once the pandemic is under control? I think that's pretty likely. Um, the director of Medicare services um, was, has been quoted many times to say the genie is out of the bottle. It's going to be hard to put that back. And we've gotten to see how telehealth services have really increased uh, access to care. And it's going to take a lot of discussion about what exactly that means, because in many cases, um, and for people who don't have access to the internet, telehealth has come to include a telephone call. And that's not exactly what we mean by telehealth. So um, I think there will be a lot of discussion about what exactly will continue going on. In fact, there's some discussion going on right now in our General Assembly um, about what telehealth will mean. And there was a group that was convened uh, over the summer uh, to develop a Virginia plan for telehealth um, that is recommending that some of these expansions continue beyond the, beyond the time of the public health emergency. And you mentioned broadband access being one of the considerations, and that's something that, you know, that's always first in my mind. Uh, but when people ask me about barriers to adopting telehealth, there's so many different perspectives to consider. You've got to think about, you know, is the patient willing to use telehealth? Is the physician willing to use telehealth? Is the hospital or clinic have the right support staff with the right training? And of course, if it's not covered by insurance, none of any of the rest of that matters. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the biggest barriers? Well, a lot of those barriers have fallen during COVID, like insurance coverage. Um, doctors became willing because it was the only way they were going to be able to see their patients. And patients became willing because it was one of the only ways they could see their doctors. So um, we've been pushed into willingness um, by COVID-19 in a lot of respects. Um, but I do think that the challenge is overcoming 
uh, the fear of technology and um, that am I going to get the same kind of care that I might have gotten in person? If I have a choice, would I rather see my doctor or other professional in person? Um, but, but for some people who don't have access to the internet, there is no choice. They, they can't even um, offer, uh, have the option of using telehealth. So that is a big barrier, you know, having, being able to have access to, um, to internet services and whether that's on the cell phone, if you are somebody of a low income who um, has limited number of um, minutes on a on a pay as you go cell phone, it's going to be very hard to pay for um, those extra minutes that that are needed for a video call. Um, if you're somebody who has less than two bars of signal, it's going to be very hard to get a continuous video signal on your cell phone. And um, so having access to a strong cellular signal or decent in-home internet service is uh, definitely a, an area of um, continuing health, a cause of continuing health disparity for a lot of people in rural areas and people of lower incomes. Are there assumptions that people make about telehealth that maybe aren't really true or have changed over the years? Well, I think there's uh, continuing to be quite a bit of research about telehealth and is it as effective as in-person care? And, um, you know, one one of the things that we are seeing, there's been quite a bit of research around, for example, behavioral health that shows that in general, behavioral health via telehealth is as effective as in-person care. I was recently talking with somebody who was distressed that their um, therapy appointment was only going to be available by um, telehealth. And could that possibly be, be as effective as, um, as inpatient as as face to as a face to face interaction, and I said, "Oh yeah, you know, that's one area of research that's really demonstrated that it can it can be equally, if not more, effective um, than in face to face in person care." Um, and one of the things that we found in our research with, on behavioral health with geriatric populations was that in some cases people would. Um, let down their guard and be more relaxed and be more natural in a situation where they didn't have to travel in to see a doctor or, um, you know, they could be in, in the comfort of their own room in, uh, in a long-term care facility. And now uh, during COVID, we are, um, our partners are working with um, younger people who are accessing behavioral health at home um, when they might have had to travel, get you know, leave school and go travel for a while with their parents and um, miss out on activities and family life. Um, they're finding that they're actually more comfortable sharing at home and it disrupts family life much less. So there are a lot of assumptions that people make about telehealth that um, are breaking down as more and more people have a chance to 
access it and experience it and realize that um, it does it does offer some benefits that we hadn't thought about. I think the other thing to remember is that telehealth isn't always the best option for every situation. Um, you know, it's not it's not the best option for necessarily emergency care. You can't set a bone through telehealth. You, you need to have some hands-on care for some things. So it's not necessarily um, emergency care option. Although in, for example, a rural hospital that doesn't have specialists may have a specialty consultation in the emergency room for a situation where they can have a higher level of expertise in their emergency room with a telehealth consultation than they might have had, um, winging it on their own. So, um, I think those are a couple of assumptions that are important to remember that telehealth uh, delivered in for appropriate um, purposes in appropriate settings can be equally effective, but it's not uh, the solution for all kinds of care. Well, and you mentioned uh, school-based care and you know, right now you've got the school-based initiative. It's pulling together, I think, three public schools with a total of nine sites, mm -hmm. working with three provider organizations. And your presentation talked about the benefits for parents and students, you know, not having to take time off of work or to miss school. But I had to wonder, what do the teachers think of all this? Well, hopefully some, some of those teachers are parents. So in, in the case where their children might be able to access care without them having to leave school and go, go um, to, to the doctor's office, that is actually a convenience. And very often children have to, you know, in, in rural areas, missing school is... Um, you know, going to the doctor's office doesn't just mean, you know, leaving school for a few hours. It means leaving school for a few days to get an appointment and then having that follow-up. And um, sometimes students don't need to be sent home. Um, for uh, One example is for um, uh, like an itchy eye or a runny eye. It, it could be conjunctivitis of some kind, but is it infectious conjunctivitis or is it allergic conjunctivitis? It's possible that a, a school telehealth visit could make that distinction and allow the child to return to class and not interrupt if it were allergic, uh, aller allergic conjunctivitis. Um, and the parent could pick up a prescription on the way home and um, the child and the parent wouldn't have to miss work. So um, remembering that, that teachers are also very often parents and can benefit from that convenience is important. And also the, um, you know, having kids back in the classroom when they can learn helps them keep on track with um, their learning goals. At one point, our teachers very much wanted to be able to access the services as well. And in some school systems with, with funding for that purpose, that is, a, that is a possibility as well. Our program was specifically for students um, and our providers um, were not 
um, able to serve adults. They were specifically providers for children, but in some areas where their school telehealth is in place, they are working with um, providers that serve uh, adults as well as students and um, faculty and staff at the schools can also access telehealth services conveniently um, from the school site. Which would be a great benefit to the school system if their teacher didn't have to drive two hours or whatever, didn't take a whole day off work and then exactly. have to get a substitute teacher to be able to provide that service right there in house. You know, maybe exactly. they miss a class, but not the whole day. Exactly. So um, I think it, it does offer benefits that um, we haven't even begun to see because we're really just beginning to implement this in the state of Virginia. COVID, of course, suspended school-based telehealth when the kids weren't able to go to school. But at the same time, as we talked about before, telehealth expanded in other areas. Were any of the expansion activities particularly interesting or surprising to you? Well, not all of the school-based telehealth um, was extended and, uh, you know, we or was suspended. The primary care telehealth was, but what we found um, was surprising and uh, and encouraging to us was that um, because we had worked with our regional community services board before the COVID epidemic uh, really took off, um, they had positioned themselves to be able to deliver their services via telehealth in the schools um, for counseling for families and children. And so when schools shut down, we had, we had about, uh, I would say about a dozen families that had um, taken advantage of those services in the year before COVID and, um, and then maybe about 20 visits in, happening in school with children and families. In the first three months after the epidemic shut the schools down, um, the CSB um, moved very quickly, and we our funders supported them by allowing us to purchase additional Zoom licenses and to get them additional training so that they were able to train their entire youth and family staff in delivering services via telehealth and utilization of those youth and family behavioral health services jumped to having something like a hundred or uh, 280 um, participants and over 900 visits in the first three months of the pandemic. So it was, it just boomed. And you can imagine the stress on families um, all being in one place, trying to do virtual schooling, trying to figure out how do we do this quarantining, families trying to work from home, and many families being out of work um, put a lot of pressure on families. And, and fortunately, there was access to behavioral health services because our partners had positioned themselves to be able to um, deliver these services to families at home. And um, so I think that was a real 
um, a really great um, ability on the part of the community services board to to pivot um, because of their preparedness through the school-based uh, telehealth program. The free clinics and the com- um, federally qualified health clinics in the area also were facing pretty much a shutdown of their physical facilities to be they couldn't um, they couldn't provide services in-house, as it were, but they because they had prepared for the delivery of services via telehealth, which they thought might be sort of a sideline, they were prepared to begin to deliver services to their clients um, through telehealth during this time. So that really, um, again, we had support from our funders to redirect our resources to get them additional um, licenses for um, online uh, presence, um, that we actually had a high-risk provider, a doctor who was able to provide services from home, who is still providing um, telehealth visits from home, um, even while some of her patients are coming into the clinic. so there have been a lot of exciting opportunities for our partners to deliver services and find ways to serve their their patients, their clients, using telehealth um, in a variety of ways over these uh, last 10, 10 or 11 months as we've um, all been figuring out how to do life differently and do healthcare differently. Um, it's really remarkable what some of the healthcare systems have been able to accomplish um, in terms of um, virtual visits um, with their clients, um, use of artificial intelligence to do e-visits, um, to uh, triage patients, um, to be able to um, reach out to their their clients um, and um, you know use use of um, tablets and technology to connect families with patients who are um, isolated in the hospital um, for family visiting um, and do virtual tours for um, parents to be who uh, yes the babies kept coming and they needed to be born so the families still got to have a tour of the labor and delivery delivery suite and some of those um, expectant parent classes but they were done virtually so just a whole variety of applications that um, that that the creative uh, healthcare professionals and the healthcare systems um, discovered as they, out of necessity, found ways to use technology to create access to care, create access for families, and um, create access for their patients to, um, to, for everything from yoga classes and stress management to um, triage to determine, do I need to come into the emergency room for these symptoms that might be COVID. Um, so it's it's been an exciting time. Um, if there is any silver lining to this um, crazy time of pandemic, um, 
could it be that we have a new way to access healthcare that is um, more convenient and less contagious and um, just creates an option for us to um, see our providers in a, in a healthy, safe way? You know, thinking about some of those options and pondering, you know, the changes that I've seen in telehealth over the years, one of the things that I've noticed is the difference in what equipment is required. It used to be that even just a basic visit required some very expensive technology. Mm-hmm. But when I needed to see my primary care doc a few months ago, we just chatted using the video feature on my phone. Yes. What technology changes have you seen? Oh, it's been incredible. And in a very short time frame, I was looking at a grant I wrote in 2016, and we were still proposing these $35,000 carts that for, for use in the schools. And um, I, we're now using a uh, equipment about the size of maybe if you took two smartphones and lined them up and it has um, a, a little, um, it's got attachments for um, looking in students' ears and blood pressure and stethoscopes and um, a, a camera for um, close-ups of the skin or the throat and um, it's attached to a tablet and it's wireless and it's um, it can be you know packed up in a backpack to for home visits and um, these are much less expensive much more portable um, and you know, the, the advancements are happening so very quickly. I was recently in a meeting where they were talking about um, a contact lens that could measure blood sugar and a ring that you can put on your finger that can measure blood pressure. So um, the advances in technology are, are growing so very quickly, um, almost more quickly than we can um, afford to adopt that adopt it um, but I think the fact that it it is much less expensive that we can access this on our on devices that many people have um, makes it much more accessible um, I, I think if you talk to um, people now many people have have experienced a telehealth visit on their smartphones um, in the last year or the last 10 months. And um, it didn't take any special equipment at all. Now they did, uh, they probably didn't have any special um, testing. So that was, um, that's still something that most of us are needing to stop by a lab to have our lab work done. Although there are different peripherals to, um, to check your your lab work, I know uh, my mother used to monitor her her AFib on her Apple Watch, and um, they do have EKG attachments that you can get if you want to spend the extra money for your smart your smartphone. So um, 
the the rapid um, advancement in technology is almost hard to keep up with. Um, but I think one of the benefits of that is that the price is coming down so that just about any um, small doctor, rural doctor's office can afford to connect with their patients um, for the price of a Zoom license and some additional um, safeguards in place to protect privacy. Um, there's also a great deal of support available um, from our uh, telehealth resource centers to make sure that um, providers have the resources they need to set up a system that's sustainable to provide telehealth to their to their clients. And with all the technology changes, what concerns are there with keeping patient information safe? Well, I think I think it's important that um, providers are are um, do their homework to make sure that the security um, provisions are in place for um, for keeping. HIPAA compliance, although during this time of COVID, there have been some uh, easing up on HIPAA compliance uh, penalties. HIPAA has not gone away, and we do expect that um, that they will tighten right back down on that HIPAA compliance in as soon as the public health emergency is over. So anyone adopting telehealth should be sure that the technology they're adopting is HIPAA compliant and not rush into, for example, using um, FaceTime on your on smartphones because that is not a secure platform. Um, or you know, live visits on on Facebook. Um, you want to be sure that you have a platform that is secure, and um, it also is very helpful to have to use a platform that can link to your um, electronic medical record, so that you can capture information from your visit and and utilize the secure features of that electronic medical record. Um, I think that there, there are a lot of options out there, but not every vendor has really certified that their, um, their technology or their software or their telecommunications option is HIPAA compliant. So it's important to set up a system carefully and thoughtfully to ensure that your you know, you're set up for the long term, that you're not exposing yourself or your patients' um, private um, protected health information to to be violated and um, utilized in a way that you didn't mean to. At the Virginia Rural Health Association, we currently have a grant to provide technical assistance to rural health clinics to assist them in establishing telehealth services. But for providers who aren't RHCs who are interested in exploring telehealth, what would you consider to be necessary first steps? Well, uh, you know, it is great to have that that assistance, um, not only financially, but technically. 
And um, I think a great first step is to be in touch with your telehealth resource center. The Mid-Atlantic Telehealth Resource Center is a wonderful resource for organizations getting becoming telehealth ready. And um, they can assist you. They also have some technical assistance funds to walk an organization through that process of um, becoming telehealth ready. And so it's important to really, you know, carefully consider wh- how you want to use telehealth in your organization. You know, what, what, are, what are your parameters? Um, what are your boundaries um, for what clinical situations are you interested in um, utilizing telehealth? And where are you not comfortable using telehealth? Learning about um, the you know appropriate utilization of telehealth, I think, is important. And thinking through the how is it going to work. Um, one of the things that we do with organizations and talking about the telehealth workflow is we talk about the what is their existing workflow, and it's it's never ceases to amaze me that. Um, sometimes organizations have never talked about that before. You know, what is our workflow? And then looking at how does telehealth fit into that? And then really thinking through the documentation requirements for, um, you know, not only for running an office and uh, billing, but also for keeping track of your telehealth equipment and your security requirements. So. Once you've really done that thorough um, consideration of your your usage case, then you can start to make your technology decisions and fit the re- equipment requirements and um, software needs to your usage case. Um, and that will also help you determine your broadband and your bandwidth requirements and um, what kind of interface you need to have with your electronic medical record and um, what, what kind of safeguards you need in place security-wise for to assure that HIPAA and high-tech compliance. So those technology decisions um, will hopefully then also lead you into a real um, plan for training on how to use the equipment, how to um, deliver care and um, taking time to do some training and telehealth um, utilization and etiquette is important. And, um, and also having a communications plan, both with your patients as well as with your payers. Um, you need to make sure that you have clearly communicated with the um, with the insurance companies that are paying your bills about your intentions, as well as with the, the patients that you're working with um, about their options. And we'll make sure that we include a link to the Mid-Atlantic Health Resource Center in the show notes so people can access that wonderful wealth of information. So last question, question I asked all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? 
Well, definitely connect everyone to high-speed internet. I think that would be a huge jump forward in so many ways. And, you know, it's not just about putting internet in people's homes. It's also um, helping people with access to devices that can um, can access that and and helping people overcome their their hesitation to utilize those devices. I was talking with a, somebody who serves on a rural broadband committee today about how can we um, fund a trainer, almost a community health worker really, who can go into people's homes and help them learn how to use their devices, their, you know, if they get broadband and they get computers, how can we get people tablets and show them how to use it so they're more comfortable accessing healthcare this way? Um, technology is not the solution to accessing healthcare. Um, technology alone won't, won't solve the problem, um, but technology in the hands of caring, competent, healthcare providers and community health workers working together, I think can create a tremendous amount of access that's available to people, but it's just not yet accessible. So to me, that partnership between people and technology can go a long way toward creating access. And um, I think that we are going to see some progress. I think another silver lining of COVID has been because we needed, um, we needed communities connected for education. It has resulted in some creative problem solving to help um, lower income families get access to the internet and, uh, communities that regardless of income didn't have access to figure out ways um, to get, to get together to organize to get some access in their community so um, we are taking steps forward towards that and um, I guess it, taking a step back from telehealth I would also say that I think we have a lot of work to do in the area of addressing health disparities and, you know, the rural disparity is still a very big um, issue, um, but so is the racial disparity. And I think that we have to talk frankly and regularly um, about how can we overcome those barriers that continue to set up um, the high risk for our black and brown brothers and sisters in healthcare. And um, this needs to be a regular part of our conversation as we're planning healthcare um, programs and um, as we're looking ahead towards um, how can we improve the health of our communities. I, I don't think we can afford to continue to, uh, to ignore that there is such a disparity and, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's uh, an essential part of our conversations, of our planning and our action moving forward is to close that gap. So I hope that begins to answer your question. Better access for everybody because we want to improve all of rural Virginia. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you, Donna. 
I've enjoyed talking with you, Beth, and um, I think we could probably go on for another hour, but I'll, I'll, I'll end here and thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak to you on the Rural Health Voice podcast. That's Donna Dittman-Hale with her mission to improve the health status of all rural citizens. Ms. Hale was one of the speakers at a recent Rural Health Voice conference. To view the video presentation that led to this interview, visit vrha.org, select Rural Health Voice Conference under the Events tab, and register for the event. You can choose to watch just one or all five of our excellent speakers. Ms. Hale's presentation was sponsored by Anthem Healthkeepers. The Rural Health Voice Conference and this podcast are sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health.